Dave, we are a podcast about music for musicians and for people that really understand the power and value that music can bring into people's lives. The last few months, however, have been particularly challenging for musicians and people that work in and around music. And so today we're very proud to show our support for a fantastic charity doing some brilliant work in this area here in the UK. That's all right, John. Um, Help Musicians are a, an amazing charity who offer a wide range of services and support for those based in the UK. This includes work with creative programmes, support with health and wellbeing, to name but a few. So for those who love music, want to support the industry and help see it grow, please visit www.helpmusicians.org.uk. Love music, help musicians. Now let's get on with the show. John. Oh, hi, Dave. Welcome back to the Punk Rock Academy podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. How are you? I am excited. I know. Very, very excited. As you can probably tell from my voice, uh, I'm just trying to keep myself calm, breathing techniques just to lower the heart rate a bit. But yeah, I'm very excited about our guest today. Well, I'm excited. We, I mean, again, Dave, um, I sometimes feel that you try and paint a picture that isn't quite the the reality of the situation but we have just had a chat with jay um so let's not pretend that we do this intro beforehand um uh i i don't want to say it's my definite favorite but it's a really really good chat um and yeah i'm excited for people to, people to hear it definitely i would say it actually was my favorite um some it had, it had everything really it had a lot of emotion, had highs, it had lows, it had a few twists, a few funny stories as well. Um, it just really had it all. Had it, it really all. Did. Had it all. Yeah, it was a very good, very good chat. Yeah, so so while we're talking, John, um, we mentioned about Suicide Machine's upcoming uh, split album with Coquettish. And it made me think about, you know, what is your favourite split album or EP? Oh, man, I love it. I love a good split. Um don't know, you don't seem to get them too much anymore. Um, oh, okay. Uh, the first one jumps to mind. I really like the Alkaline Trio Hot Water Music split. That was good. I'm going to say um, the Bull Weevils split with the Freeze on Doctor Strange Records. I love the Bull Weevils, but I think all those songs uh, on that split are brilliant. Um, I love everything the Bull Weevils did, but that was a great, or have done, and that was a great, great split but it introduced me to the freeze who soon became like one of my like bands i just became absolutely obsessed with um uh, and again those songs are great on there so i'm going to say the bull weevils the freeze we should say dave by the way you and i appear on a split together don't we you've forgotten that haven't you i actually kind of wanted to rule that on my life I mean, it's not it's not one of my favourites um, and I hope it's no one's favourite, but um, but we're on a split together. Good artwork. Good artwork. I'll say that. What's your favourite split, Dave? OK, um, I have a, a couple in mind. So, you know, I could name up Rancid, Split of No Effects. We've got Against Authority, Split with Anti-Flags and also 
the suicide machines had a split EP, um, EP with Pot Shop from Japan. However, my favourite um, split has to be Less Than Jake split with Megadeth. Believe it or not. No. Yeah, I've, I've actually got it on vinyl. Yeah, Less Than Jake do All My Best Friends Are Metalheads and Megadeth do The Disintegrators. And yeah, when I saw it, it was like, yeah, I have to get that. Um, totally unexpected, but at the same time, totally brilliant. Yeah. Totally. I don't know. There's two songs that already exist. I don't know if that should... I mean, it's it's good to see them together, but is that a good split? I don't know. I, I would say it was. A, I think it's a brilliant split. I think your opinions suck, Dave, but there we go. So let's... Uh... <laughs> um. No, good, good choice. Um, right, anyway, go. let's go to, to the chat with Jay. Jason, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, re- really good. Really good. We were just talking, Jason, uh, about the fact that both of us couldn't make your London show a few weeks ago. Pretty epic. Was it good? Okay, good. It was pretty good, dude. Jason, I was saying, I was bitching about it for a while because I had tickets uh, for the original show in, in October. And obviously waiting, waiting, waiting. I was like, yeah, they're going to come over. They're going to come over. Obviously, you had the new album, album out um, from Pat Records. And I saw the date that had been rescheduled. And I was like, fuck's sake. It was a day I'm flying back from holiday. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah, totally yeah, missed that's it. Right. Totally missed it. But, you know, I'm sure you know, everyone had a great time. I had a few friends who, who went along and um, they had a great time. But I want to go see you guys again. So you're going to have to come over to the UK yeah. again sometime soon, hopefully. Yeah, man, the sound the sound was terrible, uh, but um, it was we don't usually play venues that small very often, so it was pretty hyped. It was pretty. I mean, I think everyone was absolutely a drunken mess too. It seemed like at, at the show, so people were kind of wiling out a little bit. It was fun. It was good. Good energy. It was new. It was it New Cross? Was it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. it's a good. It's a good little venue. Um, but you're very, right. Very it's cool. About, it's about the only one going in London actually at the moment. It's a bit depressing um what was the sort of crowd like dave and i uh before just before the pandemic dave and i went to see 88 fingers louis at the new cross mm. inn and mm. um the thing that struck me and we chatted to dennis about this was just like how many people turned up that basically looked like they hadn't left the 90s it was like <laughs> three quarter length baggy shorts xl t-shirts mm. same sort of moves what was what was the vibe like no man it was a little bit of both i mean maybe there was one or two of those like types there but i don't know i mean you, you saw you know black white people with punks screw boys like soccer actually a couple skinheads proper like i don't know it's kind of mixed like a mixed crowd really there was actually quite a few young people they're just like ah i never thought i'd be able to see you i mean they were like 14 or something like they, i don't know how they get it they're pretty young quite a few people so yeah. it was it was mixed crowd man very mixed very mixed yeah, yeah i guess i obviously like you guys had split up for quite a while and you know you, you got back together but the people had got into you guys in the interim of thinking you know these are it's a great band but i'm never gonna see him again and now having the opportunity to actually go out and actually experience suicide machines live like thankfully i've seen you guys a few times i remember seeing you guys first time probably Late 1999, maybe a bit earlier than that. Later than that, sorry, when you played Blessing Jake at the Underworld. Oh, that was wild. Yeah, that was one of my favorite shows. Absolutely awesome, yeah. awesome show. 
epic uh, King Prawn. Yeah. Uh, what was that great M- band? They M- two Motley. singers. Motley's Motley, Dance Museum. Great band. MDS, yeah, they were a really good band. Fun fact, um, Steph, who was in that band, actually went on to join my old band after that. I know it. Yeah. Down, downhill from there for them. It, it, it pretty much was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jason, that's a fucking amazing good memory. Um, I was at that show and I, I didn't even remember who was playing that. Um, I think 98 was the first year I like stopped doing drugs and drinking. <laughs> uh, so I kind of remember a, a, a window of time from like 98 to, oh, I don't know, 2000. Didn't, did, right. didn't you also play Reading that year? Yeah, Reading, so the first, I saw you at Reading 99 in the Vans Warped Tour tent. Yeah, that was wild. Do you remember everyone fighting the, fighting with the security during Pennywise? I watched a dude get his eyeball knocked out. No. Yeah, I won't say who did it, too, because I know who did it. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it, it got wild, man. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the craziest shows I've ever been. A bunch of people got arrested that were in bands in on the tour. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I won't talk about it because I'm not going to say who and what, but, dude, it got intense between people that were on the warp and the security of Reading and Leeds. It was getting out of hand in the in the pit. Well, I do remember my favorite sort of story, my, my sort of positive punk rock story from that, other than the fact it was, apart from the violence, was a genuinely good show. But um, I remember my uh, my girlfriend at the time and my friend went to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers during Pennywise's set. And they said they could just hear us singing like Bro Him or something the whole time. Because um, But it was like that, even during your, you were the first band I think I saw that day. Um, and it was awesome. It was just so good. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know which 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 one it was. If it was Reeds, or Reeds, Leeds or Reading, but the security were being really rough with the people in the crowd, and that's what sparked it. Yeah. And I and I remember Fletcher from Penny. I mean, I shouldn't name names, but I remember Fletcher Penny by just being like, you know what? That's it. And he jumped down and he started hitting security guards. It was just like it got crazy. It was, so. I mean, I saw, I mean, I, I, yeah, a couple of friends, I saw one guy, one guy go up for a crowd surf with DMs on and mm. just take a guy's nose out with him. Like as his DMs went up, he just caught someone's bottom of the nose and blood just flew everywhere. And it just like, it was just people just walked out. I remember people walking out of that tent with steam just coming off their bodies. Yeah. Like mad. Let's talk more about the glory days. <laughs> this is- yeah, let's talk about good stuff, right? Okay, good stuff. Um, I understand. Or I know that you've got a new split LP coming out of Coquette coming out soon. Mm. Uh, how did that come about? Obviously, um, we spoke to Mike Sosinski from Bad Time Records a while ago, who was very coy about uh, some upcoming releases. I know he was a big fan of Suicide Machines, but um, yeah, how, how did that come about? And what are we to expect from the new release? Well, you know, it's weird as uh, we've, we've known, we've been touring with Coquettish for years. You know what I mean? And uh, it was one of those things. Oh, we'll do a split or, you know, whatever. We'll do a split. We'll do a split or we'll do something, you know, never just came about. And uh, it finally came about, you know, a million years later. And um, Fat Records didn't want to put it out because they weren't really into coquettish, which is ridiculous because all that they had to give Fat was like a really bad, like four track sounding demo. They actually didn't have like the recording yet. You know, like these are the songs we're gonna do, and and Fat passed on it. So, you know, and I've been I've kind of 
I've known, I played with Kill Lincoln and my other bands too, as well as the machines, like the traders and break anchor have all played with Kill Lincoln over the years. And, and I like what Mike does. I think he, he's a true believer. Sorry if I'm swatting off fish flies, dude, I live right by the Detroit river. So it's fish fly season. Uh, you know, so like, I, I really know what he's doing. I think what he's doing is right. You know what I mean? How he does it, everything about it. Like he just has that fire, you know? And so I hit him up and was like, you know, I, would you like to do a split with us in coquettish? And, and he actually likes coquettish too. And he's like, Oh hell yeah. Are you kidding me? Like coquettish are like the reigning hardcore Scott punk champs in Japan. You know what I mean? For sure. You know? So it just finally came about, man. Pretty excited to actually have it out. It was just something that had been talked about, you know, drunken nights with those guys in Japan being like, yeah, we'll do something someday. Is, is it a similar, um, is it so similar, uh, trans from transition from the, from the album in terms of its sound? Cause I mean, the thing about the machines is you guys can, you guys can go in one of several directions, can't you? So what, what can we expect? Uh, there's definitely a song on there. That's bizarre. Uh, I'm not really sure how to classify it. And then there's the other the other couple songs actually really pissed off to be honest with you, kind of kind of like battle hymns meets uh, I don't know I, I hear some dead Ken bees in, in in there a little bit, but it's like you know our record battle hymns with maybe a little pinch of dead Ken bees and then uh you you heard awake yeah which awake I'm not I don't know what that reminds me of but it it sounds like the suicide machines to me I guess I don't know yeah it's got a bit more pop, it's a bit poppy but then you you had other yeah. Stuff was, Oh yeah, yeah. But, but I like that. I mean, I I was always a battle hymns guy. I've I've said that on this podcast before. That was my um, that was my favorite favorite album. Um, yeah, and- I'm sure you saw what was going on with Roe versus Wade, and me and the, me and the guitar player already wrote a bunch of songs as of last night. Uh, so we'll see <laughs> what happens with that because there's obviously gonna be a freaking civil war in america eventually here or some type of war so uh looks like it's heading that way yeah man this it's dude i don't want to live here anymore it's depressing <laughs> i mean it's i mean you sort of would you know joking aside you go back to the um oh i'm not joking man no 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 <laughs> but i mean I, I, no sorry not about that i mean when i say kind of the glory days of the 90s like uh, you know you can look at the kind of music and the um and the stuff that was happening uh you know and the reason why some of the the sort of scar stuff in particular was was kind of kicking off and you can almost tr- you know track that against the political movements of the time i mean things were relatively stable compared to what they've become in the last sort of 20 years or so but um it's just depressing to see how far backwards um everything's mm. gone despite i think even despite i mean bands like yourselves you know obviously you know introduce a lot of young people like myself into the sort of more political side of things but um it seems that there's just things are very just sadly moving in a horrible, horrible direction quickly as well. Yeah. It's terrifying, man. It's terrifying living here at the moment, but it's funny because I don't really consider the machines like a political band at all. I just kind of like, I think we, we just point out what is humane and not humane or what is, because I can't say that I'm right or wrong. I'm just, you know, but I try to point out like how to, what's not being a good human being and what's being a good human being, right? Did you know, I think that's such an important point. Like, I think we get so mixed up in what, in, in political divisions across, across, you know, the world, but particularly in this country. And I think it seems like happening in the States and we sort of, we, we end up 
taking sides on political issues based on you know where we've put our flag in the sand but an issue like Roe versus Wade which is obviously wrapped up in politics but that's not a political issue this is a human issue it's a health issue um, yeah. and we, we we forget this sometimes don't we so I mean I would I would say you guys are a political band but I know what you mean it's not a sort of government politics in the with the big p is it yeah i mean if you really want to it is about being you know a good human when it comes to roe versus wade but i I think a lot of people don't realize that you know america is also obviously a capitalist situation right like but that that ties in with i think religion is almost becoming like it's almost like the smokescreen of really what the, the root of this issue is more than anything like everyone's like oh it's it's the Christians and fuck yes, it's the Christians, but you know what, man, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a capitalist society over here. You know what I mean? There's, there's a lot more to it than just that, you know, in, in the parties. Having a good united voice and some kind of, um, some kind of revolution with a small R might, might just spark things. Ah, it's just crazy to me. I mean, you know, we, it's so much crazy stuff has happened here in the past, like three to four years. I, like, I'm not surely, I don't, I don't know if anyone knows what to, what's going to happen, you know? So is it, is it sort of part of the reason why um, the machines got back together? I mean, is, is a thing sort of not so bad that you, you felt you needed to do it for anyone else, but for your own sake and your own sanity, did you need to kind of go back to something old and familiar to kind of take yourself away from the, the sort of, sh- you know, the shit that's happening around you? No, no, not at all. That's definitely digging far too deep. That's definitely not why, man. Like uh, friends of ours are getting married, and we played in some like the, we <laughs> we were kind of like the the reason they met. So one one drunken night, we all decided to meet up at the pub because we knew they were going to be there for their like engagement, and we just played. And then uh, right around the same time, um, a, a very close friend of mine, uh, he was in. I'm sure you probably know what like an affinity group is. Like it's a bunch of anarchists who sort of don't know each other but they keep to themselves as far as like groups of two or three their activities uh well the police the feds actually planted a person who was arrested in seattle at uh, the g8 summit i believe and uh said we're gonna make you look like you're still wanted by us and we're gonna plant you in an area where there is anarchist groups and mm. you know if you don't want to go to jail you or your wife don't want to go to jail. You're going to infiltrate this group and gather evidence against them. And they gathered evidence against, they worked their way in. My friends, they looked, they looked up, saw he was wanted, figured it was a real deal, let him in. And he gathered a bunch of evidence against all of them. Uh, all kinds of, you know, real anarchists do real anarchist things. <laughs> so he, they had a lot of evidence gathered against them. So at that time, we had already played my friend's wedding thing. And I was like, you know what? We got a great pro bono lawyer for, for him. Uh, why don't we just raise a ton of money to make sure that this is handled. And so we played a bunch of shows in Detroit and it like made sure that his lawyer was well taken care of. And he ended up not having to go to prison. So good. I got that yeah. interpretation very wrong, but I'm glad I asked because it's a good, good story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I I would say that writing the record maybe has helped my sanity. What what's left of it, you know, that for sure. Uh, a lot of people are surprised maybe that Revolution Spring was more of a, a a positive vibe, you know, but 
that's just the director that's the direction i was heading you know and was it hard to write that album after such a long time away from the suicide machines it, it was until the first couple of songs came out and then it was like oh yeah these 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 are these are good and this is the right this sounds right I, you know it took a lot of years you gotta understand like the, our guitar player had had left Mm-hmm. And then, and then Justin, who was the drummer of my other band, Hellmouth, plays guitar. He plays great ska punk guitar. He was in a ska punk band from Detroit, and uh, and uh, so he joined us. So it kind of he already had that that skill, but I think it, you know it took a good amount of years of him being in the band and playing and becoming accustomed to really the feel of this band and playing with the other two guys before even the record could be written. You know what I mean? So like to, to just completely lock in and get the vibe of what we needed to do. You know, I think he, he it, that's why it took so long to put on the record, you know, just a lot of years of playing together and playing shows. And all of a sudden he came, he, he came with the first song. What song was that? Uh, Awkward Always. And I wrote lyrics in like that night, I think it was. And then I just, I think the only thing I did was like, I added the sing-along bridge where it drops out. And then I was like, dude, this is a song. And then it was kind of like, from there, it was like, okay, there's sort of a vision of how this is going to go, you know? And that was produced by Roger Lima of Lesson Jake. Is that right? Yeah, man. Yeah. It was, uh, what was that? I mean, what is, has the writing process always been, I know you've had a few different people in the bands over the years and obviously there's been a lot of different, I guess, periods of, of the machines mm. um, in terms of the sort of labels and everything like that. But has, has it always been a fairly collaborative process? I mean, I was under the impression that you kind of probably contributed more than most no, so it, it, it was all different phases, right? Like, at one point, I would say it was just Dan writing in the very early years. And then it was, uh, like, I'd say me, Derek, Dan, and Royce kind of all writing for a little bit. Maybe more so, uh, I'd almost say at one point, maybe Derek and Dan. I, I mean, I wrote a lot of the lyrics, but, like, Derek and Dan were definitely writing a lot of music. And then... Right around, I would say, like, I don't know, imagine some gasoline, I think, is when I was really starting to write the bulk of, of things at that point. I was starting to really write a lot more. A more so that, I mean, that, that was a few albums in. I mean, that took you, what, then sort of four, three, four, five albums or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, before I was writing, like, more than just a couple songs. So I was like, okay, well, I just wrote more, like, half, maybe more than half the record, you know what I mean? Like, um, I, I, was, I was always... A proficient guitar player but um I, I don't know i just i hate my songs i've never liked my songs so i've always i love like everyone else's songs it's just the way it works for me like in my band like i i get it people are always, like even guys in my band are like, you're so stupid like this song is so good i'm like i don't really want to play it i don't i, I wrote it out like i understand there's songs that i have to play right but like there's also songs i'm just like man i i i don't like my songs man just never have I, I love i always love I, it, it's almost every band i do you know what i mean like i dude i wrote most of the lyrics for hellmouth and mo- a lot of the music and it's like i can't listen to any of it i have to say as someone uh who uh has has written and has has had to write other people's or write lyrics and melodies to other people's songs i find the latter much harder like i can't if i get given a riff I find it really difficult to, it, it takes me a lot longer to kind of get, um, get the melody out. So I guess it's, it's, it's a skill. I mean, although you don't like your songs, I think it's quite a talent to be able to take someone else's songs and put 
your belly to it. It's um, it's not it's not easy to do. I'd say. No, no, you know, one of one of the best exercises in like doing that. I know this is going to sound ridiculous. Is honestly just learn covers, play covers, and sing them. Because you'd be surprised how well that will teach you how to become accustomed to maybe picking up someone else's song and doing it. It's a uh, like you know, play try to learn and play a song you would never in a million years you know play. You know, I, I don't like the fucking Beatles. I'll learn a Beatles song and sing it. You know, talking about the Beatles, were your folks like big fans of like the Beatles here and pop like that? Was that sort of stuff you grew up with? Well, man, you gotta stand from Detroit. So, I mean, yeah, they did like the Beatles, but like. That was very secondary, if not even not even in their top 10. Like, you, you know, like my my mom and dad grew up in the era of like the MC5 here in Detroit. So we had the Stooges and the MC5, Grand Funk Railroad, like uh, yeah, a lot of Alice Cooper in my house. You know what I mean? Like they did like the Beatles. I'm not saying they didn't, you know, but, you know, it was like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. A lot of that was going on. Of course, Ted Nugent, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> You, you know what I mean? In in my house, it's funny because I like all that stuff now. But as a kid, I was just like, Psh, parent, my parents' music. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> M- M- MC5 are just a bunch of hippies. Iggy, <laughs> the, Sto- the Stooges, the fuck, what? They're not punk. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, none of that stuff is cool to me. And and it just because I was young and too like pig headed. Like, I love Alice Cooper to death now. But at the time, you know, I was just like. Psh. Well, it's, it, we've talked about this a lot because Dave and I are parents of young kids <clears throat> and we've talked to quite a few other parents. I think Dan, Dan Yeeman of... Um, Lifetime? He said, like, he, he actively doesn't try and get his kids into punk because what, what will they rebel against? Like, where are they going to go if you try and get them into the one thing that they're supposed to have as a sort of youth youth response to your parents? Um, it's only going to send them down another another track so if your parents are listening to that sort of stuff I'm, I'm interested like are they we, we spoke to Larry Livermore of Lookout Records as well and he was talking about when he was younger and go like going to lots of park shows to see the MC5 um yeah. just rock up in a park with a you know with a PA uh and a generator and just play like were, were they actively going to gigs and were they were they hippies themselves yep. were they sort of into the oh, yeah. culture y- yeah man my, my mom definitely used to go to the Grandy Ballroom for sure so she was uh she saw them many times you know and what, what sort of year is this this is what early 60s like mid 60s yeah so she went she probably was maybe even a year underage to be allowed in there but at the same time I, i've got a scooter head i hang out with that he's uh he's like 70 i don't know what is he 70 71 72 uh but he was the coat check boy at the grandy ballroom it's like a dude i kind of hang out with and you know Work, do the scooter thing with them and he was like oh yeah i wasn't even supposed to be working there i was underage by a year like and my mom would go there and dude she she went i guarantee you she was probably not old enough to get in the granny but went anyways um but yeah i mean that was just you know they they would go see the stooges you know what i mean like there's a rich history of pre-proto-punk here in detroit you know what i mean and in rock and roll really is all it is but it, it, that's they, that's what they're into man like i i didn't get it you know i remember just thinking like oh shit he just he said kick out the jams motherfucker oh that was kind of cool i'm a little kid he's swearing on the record but like you know you know what i mean like i don't know man i was too young to get it so what you were know? you so what were you appreciating at the time then oh michael jackson you know what i mean like i was doing the opposite man like <laughs> 
whatever, you know, whatever was on the, the you know, well, actually I kind of got into, believe it or not, very early hip hop because uh, we used to get a, a station on the radio. Cause you got to think FM airwaves back then were a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had an amazing station called WJLB and it was supposed to be R and B, but like, you know, nine o'clock at night, there's this guy called the electrifying mojo and he'd come on, he'd be like rocking Africa Bambada, you know, and stuff like that. And I was just like, this is cool. You know, this is like the movie, uh, beat street. Cause I saw beat street at the drive and I was a kid. And I was like, this is like, this is cool. You know, it's like break dancing music. So I kind of like n- nucleus and stuff like that. I was kind of listening to, uh, Herbie Hancock, even though he does a lot of jazz, but like that was, you know, wham. I mean, for Christ's sake, wham, you know, wham was a big, big, big guy. You know, this is like third, fourth grade. Wham is the big thing. Jay Giles band. I, you know, that was definitely one that for some weird reason I gravitated to that my mom and dad liked, but I liked, I don't really know why. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. You, I guess if you were to sort of say, um, like of these genres, which do you think I liked and which she thinks my parents liked, you probably would have switched it around, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, man, for sure. You know, you, well, the thing that kind of opened the door for me and, and I, it was cool because someone recently said they put this on their ska playlist. Oh, it was on in defense of ska. It was some comedian. I can't remember her name. She's like a ska comedian or something like that. And in her episode, she, she was trying to make a playlist for some other comedian that wanted to understand what ska was. And she put in The Tide is High, which is a cover by Blondie. But I remember hearing Blondie when I was a kid and she'd be like, oh, man, they got hip hop. And they got whatever, whatever this is even is. Like, I didn't understand what the tide is high even was, but I liked it. And it was like one of the first albums I ever bought in fifth grade was uh, Blondie Auto American. And, and that was kind of like my, my eye opener. And I really feel like that's what like must have hooked me as a kid to like gravitate towards reggae and ska because I'd never heard anything like it, you know? I remember, yeah. Weirdly, weirdly I remember hearing that that too and it having some sort of it stopped with me a bit more i'm just kind of interested yeah. like it being being that young and having your parents into that that kind of stuff which is um which i guess you know you took for granted at the time but maybe now you can appreciate a little bit more what was what was sort of life like were they were they living it were they sort of actually actively kind of counterculture um parents were they taking you to you know protests because obviously i mean detroit yeah, was late late 60s you guys had had riots and uh yeah and all my family had to move out my family moved out because the riots they lived in detroit my grandma did with my 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 mom and aunt when they're not young but you know teens moved out but um no my parents are scumbags they hung out with biker gangs you know what i mean my my my, my real dad out of the picture my stepdad um he hung out with I, I won't say the name of the, the biker gang because it makes no sense to me because he's Mexican and you would go to like these biker clubhouses and there'd be like you know neon swastikas on the wall and shit and it made no sense to me like because half my family's Hispanic and he is too but that's the biker gang fucking weird culture over here when it comes to that shit you know but uh, so I was going to hang out in like Brightmore so all the kids do this is a, a very fond memory of hearing Motorhead for the first time I was at, um, there's an area that I lived in eventually later as a teen called Brightmore, which is not the best neighborhood in the city. And there's a house that one of the guys in the, in the club lived at and he was throwing a party and they had the speakers sitting out on a table towards the windows and all the kids were in the house playing and all 
the grownups are out partying outside outside the fire you know and i remember seeing that motorhead cover with them standing on the dirt with their bullet belts like in the desert and it was and i remember hearing motorhead this has probably got to be same fourth grade like fifth grade and i like distinctly remember hearing motorhead for the first time and i don't know why it ca- caught my ear but that was definitely one of the bands that did catch my ear so my parents were, weren't really living the, the protest lifestyle or the you know the, the activist lifestyle they were just like rockers you know what i mean rockers and part partiers man so obviously your you know, introduction to blondie and motorhead when did you make the active decision to all step to you know, start pursuing music yourself I'm in, I'm in high school and I'm, I'm loving punk rock. I cut my long hair off because I totally had long hair. Uh, I kind of, I, I transitioned from listening to like Michael Jackson to like metal, probably sixth and seventh grade. You know what I mean? I found like Iron Maiden and Venom and all that kind of stuff and Celtic Frost Slayer, of course. And, um, it, but then, but then like, I think, from sixth grade to seventh grade or seven, maybe seventh grade, would that make it 84, 85? This kid that we used to like love, that was like a metalhead kid, showed up at our school and he cut all his hair off and had a big ass mohawk. I'm like, dude, you cut off your hair, dude. Like, what's wrong, man? Like, it's like, fuck metal. <laughs> it was like that. It was like, it was like that. Like, I swear to you, it was like the Salt Lake City punk movie or whatever. He's like, yeah. This is the shit. And he gave us a recorded cassette of the Circle Jerks, Black Flag, and uh, Suicidal Tendencies on one cassette. And I was like, oh. How, how yeah. did he, you ever discover how he, what moment he had? What was his? Yeah. I don't know what his epiphany was, but he gave us his epiphany. Yeah. And, and um, my grandma saw that my home life was in shambles. And she's like, well, you know, what do you want to do? And I'm like, like I think I'm going to play music. And she's like, for your birthday, I'll buy you a bass. I was like, all right. And she didn't have much money, but she took me and bought me like a cheap little, like, you know, $150 guild bass. I mean, you could buy stuff like that in the 80s. That was decent. And uh, my dad, being the sketchy person he was, was like, oh, I know this guy. We're going to go to his house. We go to this guy's apartment, right? And his apartment has a basement and an upper upstairs. And it's just packed full of like amplifiers bass amplifiers stereo equipment i'm just like oh my god all of this is stolen i mean it's just wall to wall and i don't know what favor he owed my dad he's like all right go ahead and pick something and of course i picked this it was one of those crappy custom amps that have like the padded leather around it yeah. but it had like 212s or 312s or 315s and it was super tall huge bass cap and i was like can i have that one he's like yeah sure <laughs> he just let me take it and i was like oh my god so the, we didn't pay anything. We just like carried this huge amp out of this dude's house. And he just, I don't know what him and my dad had going on, but he just gave it to me. And, uh, and I started learning like, you know, exploited butthole surfer songs and stuff like that. How, how old but are you I, at this point? Uh, probably like 13. Wow. 14. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, around then, and uh, I found the local punk rock scene. Uh, via skateboarding man everyone was like oh you you know what i mean like we're gonna go to the graystone night and see agnostic front and i was just like fuck that I, those scary skinheads uh, i'm not going to it like that show i'll get my ass kicked they're like you're probably right like all these older skaters that i'd hang out with like we're just like feeding me punk rock they're like oh this kid skates we're getting him we're, he, yeah he's still a metalhead but we're getting him out of this shit like 
and just started feeding me everything, you know what I mean? All this punk rock. So I, I would start to go see all the local bands in Detroit, you know what I mean? And, and there's so many good punk rock bands in Detroit and they're all entirely different. And this is, that's this is the, late, late eighties, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the bizarre thing about it. Every dude, not one punk band or hardcore band in Detroit sounded like another at the time. I feel like that's been lost a lot the past couple of years. It seems to be getting a little cooler, but like, it seemed like for a while, just so many people sounded like this or that. And that was like a clone of everything, which whatever you get your inspiration from, we get your inspiration from, but like, dude, no band in Detroit was the same. It was, was crazy. Because, I mean, in that, in that era, um, I mean, Detroit, first of all, is obviously from a music point of view, famed for, for those two big genres of sort of um, Motown and then obviously, you know, Iggy and, and MC5 and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and obviously then you had the introduction of um, the kind of, you know, the DIY hardcore scene making its own way across the country. So did Detroit have its own, uni- I mean, you said it didn't have um, a, a sort of unified sound, but did it, was it unified in the sense that it kind of clashed these different things together to create something completely different from anywhere else? Did it have something that kind of brought it together? Well, what was awesome is all the bands would play with each other. Right. You know, and that's how, that's how I found Gangster Punk, which was one of the original Detroit ska bands because, you know, they'd play with anybody. Just like, you know, the, like the funk dudes would play with the punk dudes, the hardcore dudes would play with the punk dudes, the, the weirdo fucking punk, art punk dudes would play with the fucking with, with the even the thrash metal like everyone kind of like all played shows together back then you know what i mean and that and that was like the beauty of detroit you would go to a, a show and you know you're seeing slaughterhouse which is just like noise like butthole servers meets throbbing gristle and then you'd see the screaming bloody leopard children which is like crust punk you know almost like db then you would see uh gangster fun and then you'd see like you know infect which is thrash metal like all these bands would be on the same bills so what were these shows like were these were these shows that were happening like diy shows that were just just local bands or did you have touring bands coming through and these bands supporting them or a bit of both okay so you gotta remember this is the 80 the end of the 80s right there 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 were touring bands and people were coming through but it was not as often as now right so you would go a month or so maybe a couple months without seeing a, a touring band that you want you wanted to see mm-hmm. you know what i mean so what would you do in the meantime you, you would go see all your friends bands or all like the local detroit bands you know what i mean and i would say it was almost more rowdy sometimes for those bands than it was even for the touring bands that come into town because again you wouldn't be seeing you know out-of-state bands for weeks at a time months at a time you know there wasn't a show every weekend man you had some great bands, you know, like Telegraph, uh, Master Plug from the other parts of Michigan. Um, yeah, so look, when did you decide, you know, I, I want to start playing gigs, I want to start touring, I want to start, you know, getting involved with, with, with music itself? I think my first, I don't know about business, but like the first show I played, I believe was 1988. I played for a bass for a thrash metal band. Uh, and I was like the only punk in the band, you know what I mean? It was kind of a bummer, but no one else wanted to play with me because I, I was still like, not cool in the eyes of a lot of like the punk and hardcore community they didn't know me i was just some little kid you know like slowly but surely you know people were like oh dude you know this guy's a true believer and you know just because he was in a thrash metal band i mean he, you know this dude ain't going away and he's pretty he can hold down a bass so that that kind of became like i started playing for a lot of uh bands i actually ended up playing for 
the screaming bloody leopard children which is like you know crust kind of db punk back then not even db but it's like a crust punk you know back then we didn't even know what crust punk or, or db was i think we would just be like oh we just like fucking dead end punks like it's probably gonna die before we're 21 kind of lifestyle <laughs> but like i played for them and that's like really my one of my biggest influences on bass was the original bass player i replaced because it was the first guy i watched being this like raw punk band but he was really walking bass lines and it blew my mind because i was just holding down single notes mostly or if i was doing something weird with the, the other metal band and be like a zombie ritual cover by death or stuff like that so i'd actually get to play a scale but half the time is just holding down the note right i started seeing this guy play and i was like wow like scales to the single note like it clicked and then they, those guys asked me to play when johnny moved out of state and so i had to learn everything that guy had done and then after that i started playing for a lot of people i ended up playing for a pretty epic uh, hardcore band from detroit called coldest life and then i you know i started the suicide machines you know so i'm kind of interested like if we just like go back a little bit so you're very young you get a bass you're you're introduced to punk rock. Um, there's a very active, thriving scene. You talk about, um, you sort of made a, a, a comment just before about thinking you're not maybe going to see past 21. So it, it sounds like, and things, you know, Detroit famously, I think, from, from my limited knowledge, was not a the friendliest of scenes. Is that fair? I mean, it, it, there was an element of danger to it. It had some, oh, yeah. it certainly had, it had a reputation of violence from what I've heard. Um, uh, yeah. Like what? What is like? What's your experience like getting into the scene at such a young age? And and are you like? Is this is this what your lifestyle becomes? Are you sort of living quite a dangerous lifestyle at a kind of youngish age? I, I was because you know back then it was the people like it's the end of the eighties. You got to think half the people that are at punk rock shows are people who really came from bad living situations a lot of times. A lot of broken families, you know, and, and you kind of find your family and all the rest of the misfits and weirdos. But you also have to understand there was people who were very uh, unstable and, and damaged that gravitated that to that, too, because, the, you know, they came from a similar situation. But, you know, they at this point, you know, some of those people, there's no going back for, um, you know. And yes, it was very violent. A lot of criminals, a lot of murder. Um it was it was rough you, you were really hoping at the end that you would make it through the night at a show without getting your ass kicked or having to fight for your life or hopefully not watching someone maybe you know die outside in the parking lot you know what i mean like it was it was, it was scary i'm not i'm not trying to paint like this cool picture because i don't think it was cool you know it just seems like such a world so far away from what i'm used to or have ever have experienced it it's just yeah, you know, for a young person, especially, it must be like a scary environment to be in. Well, you know, my dad was an addict, so I was around around stuff like that, you know. Uh, it was normal for me to go with my dad to a shooting gallery, you know, and I would sit in the car or, or whatever. So I was around a lot of uh, other scary characters. So to me, to escape that, it was almost, it just didn't really phase me. At the time, you know, and the irony is, is like, I, I remember the singer of one of my bands, uh, Coldest Life, was murdered by another a Nazi skinhead in Detroit. 
And, and, and so that's just kind of how, when you're escaping a bad home, home life, you're willing to take the risk, especially once you start finding your way in that scene and start making friends who become family still to this day. But you're escaping, you know, your reality. You, you trade one danger for the next. At least that's how it was back then, you know, like because punk rock is not. Yeah, some kids from the suburbs at the point at that point, I had moved to the suburbs. So some kids from the suburbs did get into it, but not many. You know, it was, it was a lot of kids who really had really messed up lives that gravitated towards the Detroit scene. Yeah. Do, was it, do you think Detroit was different in that respect? I mean, I know, I no. know no, it was, do you think that was the, the, the sort of experience across, across the country? I, I do, man. I think in all big cities, it had to have been, you know, like New York, LA, you know, you hear all these stories about it being very similar. And it's funny because I think about the, the size of it too, was the same thing. Like, once you were in that scene in Detroit, you knew, you know, all 200 people in Detroit that liked it, yeah. whether they were someone who liked Bauhaus or someone who liked, you know, Agnostic Front or someone who liked the butthole surfers or someone who liked, you know, the specials. You, you, there's, it was such a small scene. You knew everyone, you knew who the fucking Nazi skinheads were. Like you knew who everyone was because that's all there was. There wasn't any one else besides, you know, you, you know, you and a couple hundred other people, not back then. And yeah. it sounds to me like it was very similar in a lot of those cities. And then things exploded and you're like, I don't know any of these people. Right. You just kind of kick off. I mean, it's a really good time. I mean, I've just looked at the time we've spent 45 minutes talking and we were only up to your teenage years, but um, it's really interesting to hear those formative years um compared to then what happened to you because before your your very first album um is on disney uh on hollywood records um a lot of uh, you know famously a lot of money goes puts behind is put behind the band is put behind that album you you end up on there for three albums three or four albums mm -hmm. um it must have felt an absolute world away from what you grew up doing. I mean, was it was it um, a great experience to cut yourself off and try something new and, and be in this very different environment? Or were you just sh shocked and kind of slightly found this whole new world a bit surreal and odd? And <laughs> yeah, that real is that world. That world isn't very real. <laughs> right. Uh... You know, man, look, we had done the whole DIY thing. You know what I mean? Like we, we did it. Everything that you hear anyone else talking about on podcasts from like the end of the eighties and the nineties. I mean, we did it. You, 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 you would get to a payphone. you know, you'd use book your own fucking life. You'd play Gilman. Like we did all that. And right around that time we were kind of getting ready to break up. And then, you know, Hollywood, we put out records with people. We got ripped off by beach records when we did that rudiment split. It was not on Dill. Dill just kind of helped them. Uh, distro it. I don't even want to talk about the beach records thing. So, you know, we, we, we put out our own stuff too. I mean, we've been through the whole ringer of all that and we were kind of on the verge of calling it quits when, when ho Hollywood hit us up and, and to us, we, we just didn't care. We were like half of the time we were so fucking out of our minds on one, we were young and didn't give a fuck and two, like we were partying so hard. It was just like, yeah, whatever, dude, I'll take like Walt Disney's money. Like, fuck it. Like, whatever you know and like it's a long story i've told it a million times but the guy who 
we had a lot of people, pro- we had some people approach us, not a lot, but pe- people approach us and they all sucked. Guy from Hollywood approached us. He was really cool, man. And, and he was like, look, we don't get signed. I'll steal the tapes and you got yourself a good seven inch. And we were, <laughs> and we were like, I, I like this guy. <laughs> and, 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 but I, and I believed him. And I, and I think knowing him now, cause I'm still friends with him to this day, he's still a friend of mine. I talked to him quite often and uh, he would have stolen the tapes <laughs> knowing him. Was he in, was he into it? Was he was he? I mean, was he bought in? Did Hollywood get him in? To obviously, this is so we're talking now, sort of early to mid nineties. So presumably, Nirvana's happened, Green Day are, are kind of happening. Um, so was he? Was this guy bought in to to sort of find find bands or the next new rock thing, or, or was there other oh, bands yeah. as well? Oh yeah, no, he was for sure. He was like an A and R person, right? Like. Uh, he, I don't know that he was specifically looking for us because he found us kind of on accident by another person. But uh, he, he, he was in like this band that kind of reminded me of like the Culture Club back in <laughs> back in the day called uh, Bang called Bang Bang, and, uh, and and so he he knew punk rock though. You know what I mean? It wasn't like just because he was in some band that sounded like Culture Club, like he knew punk rock man I, i've seen his record collection you know i was like oh you have every descendants record all right okay. like you know what i mean but he he uh he was walking past a person's uh like cubicle or whatever that person was rocking our split with the rudiments and obviously the whole world was exploding at the time and that 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 thing was going on with like the green days and stuff and he was like what the hell is this in the in the, in the person in the cube was like oh it's it's this band Jack of working the suicide machines. It's here, check it out. And he's like, well, it sounds like a fucked up version of like the specials or something like, and, and, uh, so the guy was like, here, borrow, borrow my CD. And he borrowed it. And, you know, back in the day, it was like, Oh, here, here's our phone number on it. Like dude called us and long story short, like, yeah, we just wrote it out with Hollywood forever. Cause they just kept giving us money and we paid nothing back. <laughs> And what are the what are the people that you're growing up with? Because we spoke to Jeff Dean about about this because he he toured with you guys, and um, so there's a couple of things I'm keen on on understanding. Like one is is genuinely what was the impact on you, like and your 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 well being because you're young kids still, and you're thrown into this world. And I'm guessing that a lot of it a lot of it you must just think this is going to be it forever. But also it's tough because you have to you've got to do stuff. You you know you're contracted to put yourself out there. You've got to be the face of things. You've got to talk on the radio. You've got to meet and greet and all that sort of stuff. And that's, that's probably actually, I know it sounds sort of slightly tongue in cheek, but it's probably not easy, is it? Uh, it's, yeah, right. It's first world problems, right? I mean, come on, yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah. a big deal, but you know, uh, someone who was having a really hard time at, at the time was, you know, Derek, who uh, is in the alkaline trio often on these days and he was in the bandles and stuff, but like, he couldn't, he hated being in magazines and videos and he didn't want to be a part of any of that. And the stress had just kind of got worse and worse. And a lot of his friends are like, oh, you're a sellout now. And a lot of his friends are just yapping in his ear saying, you know, all this stuff. And that's half the reason he quit. He didn't get along with Dan too, but like half the other half of the reason he quit was just because it was like too much for him, you know, as a kid, like, yeah. Like I think a lot of people, get thrown into situations and they're so young and I, I feel bad for them, you know, because th- this chances are your band is not it forever for starters. I think what I mean, yeah. I mean, you're right. It was for, first of all, problems, but what I think I meant, I mean, what, what I was alluding to as well was the fact that I think there didn't seem to be as a lot of um, 
attention to the people in the bands at that time. You were a commodity. Oh, you yeah. Know, you know, they, they were, you know, you were recording and that's great. And they would look after you financially. But no. did anyone ever say to you, right, listen, let's talk about how you're feeling right now? No, no, you need to be out on the road eight or nine months out of the year. Go. Yeah. That's it. You know, I, mean, I remember one time being out for like nine and a half months. I maybe was home. I think I, we were, I remember being home one day off. And then the, the next day, another nine and a half months, we played a show in Detroit. That was it. Like, I didn't see my friends. I lost touch with all my friends. Cause this is pre cell phone, really. So like, I didn't, I don't, I like, didn't talk to any of my friends at that point. Cause I was just gone for a year. And, you know, no one gives a crap. And like, and that, you know, mentally, that is definitely where, you know, Derek kind of opted out too. And I, like, I was physically destroyed because I'm an idiot and a lunatic and partying, going nuts every night. And I'd like sh- terrible shin splints and just messing my body up and doing all kinds of things I shouldn't be doing, in, you know, as far as uh, substances. And, you know, it, dude, I remember like that was, that was, that was definitely like what was starting to make like break people. You know, it, bro- it broke Derek, for sure. Yeah. And what about, like, what about, I mean, I'm guessing there must have been some kind of good, good, I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously you, you, you experience things that not a lot of people will ever get to experience. You got to probably play oh. big, big venues, see the world. Um, it must have been an exciting time. Did, did you think it was going to last forever? Like, genuinely, did you get this, like, did you get a sense when it was on that sort of peak of the, of happening that this was it now? This was, we've made it. No. No, 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 I never, I never felt like I made it ever. I mean, I just, like, you understand the band was almost broken up when we got signed. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and and we weren't, you know, we learned really quick within that first year that, you know, we are not making money. So the only way to survive and live was to just be on the road and staying at your friend's houses or in a hotel because you weren't going to pay any bills back home any other way. So you had to be gone eight or nine months, right? And I and that's again, I, I take nothing back. I regret nothing. I mean, I saw the world. I made some of my best friends. Jeff Dean, obviously, saw the world changed my life. Going to other parts of the world. I mean, hell, you know, I think if more people traveled the world, you know, you wouldn't, you'd be less inter- interested in dropping a bomb on them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. I think that traveling is a huge part of like growing as a human, you know, and, and I don't think enough people do it. And so, yeah, I'm like, I'm insanely grateful for being able to, to do that. You know, what's the best place you've been? Best place I've been. I mean, I'm, uh, I'll always say Prague, dude. I don't know why I just, I, my heart gravitates to that city in particular. It's, uh, it's something about it. I don't know if it's because it's one of the pre it's one of the, you know, cities that survived world war II. So it's just absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous. Still a little bit lawless, kind of, which feels like Detroit, <laughs> like old Detroit. Right? Yeah, right. It's still a little bit lawless around here, kind of, but like, you know, it feels like when I was a kid, but like European, you know, and hundreds of years old. Like, it's a really cool city. I don't know what it is about it. I, I, I love it. It's, it's breathtaking. So that, that, I don't know why. I don't know why. I'm kind of interested, like, um, you talk about the, obviously your music upbringing, you talk about the, uh, the, the sort of wild difference of musical styles that um, were in the punk scene, you talk about being in a, in a DC-inspired band, 
So what was like, how did you fall on this, this um, suicide machine sound that obviously captured the zeitgeist perfectly at that particular time? Like what, what was it that, obviously you had that blondie moment, but what was it that actually kind of got you into the, um, that side of things? Simple, man. I mean, Operation Ivy Energy. I mean, that record is so uplifting and crazy yet so heavy lyrically. Mm-hmm. That that album, that album, I'd already been listening to like the specials and Fishbone, you know, and stuff like that. But like uh, my friend Jeff was like, dude, you like all that. You're going to flip the fuck out when you hear this. And he, he handed me the cassette, the one that has the screen done lettering. Uh, it, it looks all scratchy, even though it's, you know, they just made it look like that on the cassette. He didn't even give me the cover. And dude, I was like, this is so like what I need in the moment. Like it just, it lifted, it uplifted me. You know what I mean? And, and it was, you know, Detroit is dark, scary and, and angry. And it was like that gangster fun kind of like boosted me a little bit, but I heard this and was like, oh man, like, th- dude, this is like hearing, you know, the gorilla biscuits start today for the first time or something too. You know, like you just hear it and you're like, dude, let's go. Like, I don't even know what we're going to do, but let's go do something. That record just set the course for me, man. Like I obviously I bit it hard, you know, right? Like I was just like, and I, and I'd played it for Dan because Dan, the original guitarist, he was like, he was, you know, we were listening to bad brains and shit like that too. But like, I remember just one day being like, I know we talked about ska, like trying to do the ska band. We didn't know what the fuck ska really was entirely. Right. And I was like, but listen to this, like, this is like, you know, we came up on punk for the most part and i was like fucking listen to this and he was like holy shit like what is this and i'm like I'm like i don't know it's like the clash but way better and you're saying you know I, mean? I mean that's a horrible thing to say because i love the clash right but it was just like that's the kind of like i didn't know how to explain it it's like, it's like bad breeds in the clash but there's just this weird fucking it makes you just want to fucking it must have it may not, I'm, obviously i listened to it later but it must have been so new and exciting um to- yeah it kind of reminds me of that scene from Back to the Future when Marvin Berry's on the phone to his cousin Chuck. Yes, that's a very bad scene and should be edited out of the history of the world. But yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they're basically saying that. Uh, what was this character in that? Well, Marty McFly, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was Mc, McFly invented rock and roll and not Chuck Berry. It's a little bit rough. <laughs> Yeah, never thought about it like that. <laughs> it's a little bit, it's a little bit heavy, man. I don't like thinking about that one. Don't, don't get me wrong. Back to the Future is a great movie. <laughs> that was I. I remember thinking it was a little bit wrong years later, but like you know, I was like, yeah, oh, that's that's not cool. <laughs> no, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, as yeah. It, and how how did like people? What was the reaction when you guys first started in in Detroit? Uh, people hated us. You know, okay. uh, no, 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 people didn't understand what we were doing. Maybe like the guys in Gangster Fun and Exceptions kind of got what we were doing because they're like Exceptions are kind of ska punkish too, a little bit. And you know, Gangster Fun were a bunch of punks, but they played ska. So, like, I think they got it, but like a lot of the punk rockers and hardcore kids are just like half of them got it and half of them didn't, right? So, it was bizarre because yeah, we would get half of the crowd, it'd be hardcore kids you know, and the other half would be punk and then there'd be some ska. And it was like, you know, we, we were raised on things like, you know, negative approach here in the city. So it was like, all right, pile on Jay and sing the song and let's get nuts. Like, like you're at a hardcore show because we didn't understand it any other way because that's how it was here. You know, you got to understand Detroit's one of the original hubs of like 
the original beginnings of like all those things like black flag touring and the, and the minor threat touring because we had uh we had a diy space here called the freezer that negative approach and uh and this girl larissa who would later on become the guitar player laughing hyenas they booked down cast corridor and uh you know minor threat and the misfits played there and this is all diy and, and this is like shoot what 81 all right so so what we understood a punk rock show to be wasn't circle pits like you see in california it was like crazy fucking hardcore shows because everyone was used to seeing the minor threats and shit like that here you know what i mean which it was an entirely different vibe than, than the west coast because we got more east coast coming to detroit than we did west back then you know yes we would get black flag but we would get you know agnostic front you know more right so you know what and, i mean so the vibe was way more crazy that's crazy and east coast the east coast is dirty detroit's dirty it's the same like energy man mm. i'm interested yeah. like, and, and how aware are you um particularly in the early 90s sort of as we're approaching sort of 92 93 94 that there's this sort of emerging um i mean you said you're booking your own tour so you're going around the country you're probably seeing a bunch of other bands how sort of aware are you of this emerging uh network of bands that obviously become some of the bands that we all know and love now and, and you know loved then um and did you have any sort of inclination that things were about to go in the direction they were heading in terms of the popularity, the money that was getting involved, the, the sort of explosion, if you like, of that 90s scene? Did, did, did you kind of get a sense that these bands were so good something was going to happen for them? No, but like, you know, I mean, uh, there, there are people kicking open the doors that you didn't expect to kick open the doors. And you're like, well, that's weird. Like, the mighty mighty Boston's are in a converse commercial what, what what the what the fuck is that like i mean i think that's even that might even be pre never mind by nirvana if i think if i remember correctly it's right around the same time so it was like that shit was crazy like to see a converse commercial and it's the Boston's, like on television like you know what i mean like very strange so like i, I think I mean, we never thought anything would happen for us, but I, we, we didn't really dwell on it back then either. You know what I mean? I don't think anyone did. I don't think anyone got into the, the, the type of stuff we were into because you ever thought you were going to, there was going to be this explosion or you're going to be famous or bands are going to be big. Not in, not in that scene. You know, maybe you had, you know, social distortion or bad religion status, you know, and exploited. It's about like it. You know what I mean? You don't think you're going to ever do much more than that. But like, it was an interesting time because you're also seeing uh, new, new things coming too, like more important bands that I feel don't get recognized enough, like you know Spitboy or or uh, you know uh, Jawbox and stuff like that was starting to pop up, and and you know they, all these people were uh, way more intense as far as what they were starting to sing about. I felt like uh, way more introspective or way more like. Uh, compassionate about what they're writing about so there's a lot of bands i feel like were getting overlooked in that era you did feel like something was going to happen even you know, even all of our friends told me like we knew we were going to lose you and i'm like what do you mean you're, you're going to lose you we're like because you weren't going to be ours anymore at some point and we're like i like i didn't really understand it the first couple times i heard it I was like, what the fuck are you talking about and then like a really good friend of mine the guitar player telegraphs like dude we knew you guys are fucking going to get signed and just disappear forever like and not be our band anymore and i was just like well i didn't see that shit coming so whatever but like I, I get it you know the, the, 
but I didn't, you, you know, I, I still don't relate to Nirvana kicking open the doors whatsoever. I, I, I don't, I didn't listen to that really, not much anyways. I mean, it was okay. It wasn't great. I'd rather listen to Mud Honey. you know, I thought they were cooler, but I just, I don't, I don't think anyone thought it was going to get as big as it got, right? Nobody did. Like, come on, like, I'm, there's no way Green Green Day even thought they were going to get that big. Like, dude, they're normal East Bay punk kids. Like, there's no way they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to be in Arena Rock Stadium, fucking classic rock and roll band uh, in the year, you know, 2022. Like, dude, they never thought that. Like, you know, there's no way. You know, I'm sure that those dudes are far more grounded than than most people probably think, too. You know, just because they're doing what they're doing doesn't mean that they, they're not fucking punk rockers, right? Yeah, yeah. Cap capitalist maybe <laughs> but more power to him because i don't think they've done i don't think they've done it wrong really so yeah. i don't know the, the explosion was bizarre right it's bizarre and nice, you know, to, no nice to be a part of it i guess dude i remember hearing rancid on the radio for the first time and just being like what the fuck dude mm. rancid dude rancid's on the radio like check this shit out because there's like a local uh radio station 89x and they uh they played uh was it time bomb yeah i think it was time i think it was time bomb and dude we were all just like because we i dude the machines had played with rancid in a coffee house to like 50 people you know what i mean i remember playing berkeley and like here comes matt freeman oh hey dude you're in town like what's up like you know 50 people at our show like and then it was like holy Fuck, dude, Rancid's on the radio. I still don't really get. I mean, I love, I absolutely fucking love Rancid, and um, yeah, first, oh, I love them too. First few albums, but it doesn't make sense. Like nothing about them makes any sense as no. to how they got to where they got. It's crazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's it's awesome. They're like my generation's yeah. clash, right? Is what everyone says, and it's the truth. But like, dude, none of us saw that coming, dude. Like, not in a million years did any of us think, because uh, I don't know. Like, do you you know what you know what they sound like? And you know, kind of probably know what's happening back then, right? A little bit, and it's like, holy fuck, man! How the fuck are they on the radio? And then it was like, boom! Like we toured with them in '95. I think Jeff Dean was on that tour. I remember correctly. Yeah, he said he said he was. I think what's weirder for me with Rancid is is that um, one is that, as you say, at the time, uh, it was they sort of broke through and became the kind of you know kings of the punk rock scene along with, you know, two or three others. Um, they were, you know, they were sort of top tier, weren't they? But now what's happened since in like, as in like now, or maybe in the last sort of five years, is that they've kind of even broken through to another level where people that I used to go to school with who hated punk or would mock me for liking anything with guitars in it, went to see Rancid. Like they've broken through the like next like ceiling. It's just, it just makes, I mean, yeah. I'm, it's great. I just don't get it, but. I, I don't get it either, and but I love it. Yeah, because I think I, I mean I, I'm a Rancid fan. I like almost all their records, you know. And it's just like uh, and they're and they're they're, they're pretty chill dudes, you know. And I kind of feel like they did it right too. Like they they did they did it really right. I don't know. I don't think they did anything super wrong in my eyes as far as how they treated their band, and how they did it. But I, I I just dude like like they're punk as fuck, right? Like they're punk. Like that's all there is to it. You know what I mean? I could see why Green Day got big. You know what I mean? Like it, it's it's very catchy. Um, one last question for me. It's a bit of a mean one, but um, I like I like the fact you say you have no regrets. But if you could tell your younger self to do something a bit differently, 
Um, it sounds like you've had an incredibly uh, interesting, difficult upbringing, a bit of a baptism of fire into, into punk rock, a completely life-changing, eye-opening experience of, you know, toying with, with you know, professional musicianship. Um, and then obviously we haven't really touched upon the years afterwards, but I'm sure there's, you know, you've been to some other bands and um, you alluded to the fact that you sort of stopped being sober at some point. So if you could talk to your younger self, I mean, there's a lot of younger selves out there, but what would you, what would you say? Ah, oh, dude. Nothing. Good. Nothing. I think you're thinking I'm going to have some sort of epic epiphany, but man, no. I uh, maybe try to be nicer to people, I guess, in general. Uh, maybe you know what I mean I, I don't know I, I was pretty nice to everyone back then too so I don't really know man I don't I, you know I, I, I survived I survived and I'm here right like I survived a lot of my friends didn't survive I'm talking real like real life <laughs> I mean so yeah I don't really have I don't know man I don't have any regrets you know there's situations that I wish didn't happen but there's nothing I can do about it right like what, what are you gonna do things happen and, and they make you who you are so that's great i'm glad you're happy happy where the where the band is at the moment and um you seem like you're in a good place and the music's you know happy and i guess um politics aside as we talked about at the beginning that's a that's a great yeah. place to be yeah it's bizarre i don't know how the hell i'm 49 years old so here i am <laughs> shit ain't so shit's not so bad looping back to obviously you said you're writing new stuff um can we expect to see it on an album or any kind of well i think what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to record it this week and i think everything if, hopefully if it turns out okay we're gonna probably donate that and then probably gonna sell a bunch of our merch online and just donate everything to planned parenthood in, in the states so look forward to hearing your work uh, so, so jay um obviously touches on many bands um which your parents have loved which you've loved but i want to, i want to pinpoint one band that has been a massive influence in your life. Who who is your all time favorite band? Ah, uh, dude, that's so impossible. Uh, how about I'll, I'll I'll let you in on people who impacted my life? Maybe I can't I can't let you on to a favorite band because I don't have one. Uh, but as far as like an impact on my life, man, like hanging out with Bill Stevenson from like The Descendants in in Black Flag. He, he gave me a lot of interesting life lessons, you know, he's been through some crazy stuff himself and, and just having the knowledge, some of the things that he's said to me have just been like, oh, yeah, like, well, why didn't I think of that? You know what I mean? Like, like some of the knowledge and just like the friendship that a lot of these people have given me in bands, like Bill is one of them, you know what I mean? So I, I can't say as far as musically, I'm always going to love, you know, Op Ivy, of course, to the day I die and, and like Bad Brains. Granted, I don't get into the King James version of the Bible, which is homophobic. I, I can't hang, hang with that. But, you know, like some of those bands, like there, there wouldn't be a Suicide Machines without Gangster Fun from Detroit. You know what I mean? So stuff like that. But it's more the people. Right, you know, it's more the people that like influence me in these bands than their music. Dave, that uh, I mean, I hope as we said at the beginning, 
people enjoyed that as much as we did. I thought that was a, a, a great chat, interesting, very honest. Um, you know, talks. I think Jay's had uh, a, an incredible um, experience in in punk rock, and we didn't even talk about all of it. We barely touched the sides. I loved the story about um, going into that apartment with his dad, where the guy had all the amps. And that was hilarious. Kid. Just that image. Uh, God knows what his dad was doing, but yeah, just being like, yeah, yeah take it, take this massive sort of huge amp. That's um, what happens when you're owed favors, mate. You just end up in a room full of amps. I'm in the wrong, in the wrong world, aren't I? Um, but thank you to Jay. Um, and as uh, you'll see in the liner notes, but um, we did have a chat with Jay about some of the sort of um, rather distressing and upsetting uh, political situation over in the states at the moment. Um, particularly concerning the sort of Roe versus Wade uh, situation and obviously the rather worrying um, situation in terms of people able to access uh, abortions legally and safely. And um, the Suicide Machines have, have put some merch and are going to put some music out um, to, to Planned Parenthood, to fundraise for Planned Parenthood. And we put a link in the notes. So if you do have some um, spare, spare money uh, and feel inclined do do donate as well um but thank you all for listening uh, as always uh, check out some more of the episodes that we've got dave anything you want to add no just make sure you check out the link for planned parenthoods donate if you can do um it means a lot it makes a massive difference to the lives of people um so yeah but that's all i really have to add really but john it was a great pleasure speaking to jay today a great pleasure speaking with you today john and um I just wish everyone a happy life. A happy life. <laughs> Have a happy life, everyone. This is Jay Navarro from the Suicide Machines, and you're listening to the Punk Rock Academy podcast.